Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Well, today I have a special episode where I'm talking to Dr. Jason Staples, with, and, and I'm presenting some questions I have about the Bible. So as part of this Great Books project, I'm going to start each year just reading straight through a different translation and version of the Bible. It's just something I want to do, and uh, I, I already have kind of the different versions and, and translations for the next few years that, that I want to, to go through. But as I read through the Bible and just read straight through it, I'm writing questions constantly in the margins and in the back of the, of the Bible that I'm reading. And so these are some of the questions that came up in, in this year's reading. And Jason is a biblical scholar. He's, he's an author. He wrote The Idea of Israel in Second Temple Judaism. That was a book that I read a few years ago. And then we talked about that on the podcast as well. And then in 2020, I read straight through the Bible asked him another set of questions after that reading. So I'll link to all that in the show notes if, if you are, have further interest in that. But some of the questions we get into on uh, in this episode are things like, what, how, how should we read the Apocrypha? So I, I, I read, as part of reading straight through the Bible, I read the Apocrypha this year. Uh, how, how do we view that? Um, the, the Bibles I had growing up, they, they never had the Apocrypha. So what, what do we do with that? Uh, what about the curse? Like, uh, can people curse People is only can only God curse people. What? How? How is our view of, of a curse different from from what uh, the people at that time their their view of, of a curse? How how are those different? Uh, what were Judea and Galilee like during the time of Jesus? What what was the makeup of the people? Was it majority Jew? Was it was it majority Roman? Uh, I just asked Jason some of, some of those types of questions. So those are just a few of the questions. At the very end, Jason talks about his his new book as well. Uh, but but here we go. We'll ju- I'll just uh, present the our, our conversation about some, it's an hour here. Well, let's uh, let's get right into question one. Um, when I, when I'm reading through the Bible, I just I I don't. I don't try to go in with any sort of like I'm looking at this or I'm looking for this this time. I just I just kind of go with what what sticks out. And I think because of of uh, having read your book recently, the idea of Israel, I this time reading through, I really focused on the 12 tribes and who were their who were the founding brothers, uh, who were members of the tribe later. I was making I was going. I was nerding out. I was making graphs and charts and and Excel spreadsheets and all that with uh, the different uh, tribes and stuff. And so, uh, my my first set of questions here is along that that line of how much when we're when we're looking at the twelve tribes and then throughout the Bible, like how much do we look at the original brothers to learn the personality of the tribes? Um, yeah, that, that's kind of that's the first question here with the twelve tribes. Yeah, I, I don't think we really can do much of that. Um, I do think that as far as the majority of the tribes, I mean, Gad and Asher and Dan and Naphtali and the rest, I mean, they're they're kind of placeholders. You don't really see much about the character of the brothers, first of all. I mean, they're not they're they're only mentioned as like they exist. Mm-hmm. And then their uh tribal role is also, you know, they're part of the they're part of Israel. And that's that's basically all we get. So we don't get much about them. Okay. So there's really not much personality to get. Uh, I do think that when you read Genesis and you read the Joseph 
narrative. So the Joseph novella at the end of Genesis from 37 uh, to the end, 37 to 50, there is some personality brought out, not just personality, but there are some characteristics of, uh, of Joseph and Judah in particular that are important for how Genesis wants to set up the understanding of, you know, the leadership within Israel. And, uh, basically that those two sort of chief tribes take the lead in each in a different way. Uh, and that Judah actually, I mean, this is one of those things where if you look at the, the Joseph novella, you have that weird insertion of chapter 38, where Judah, the Judah and Tamar story, where you have this kind of ribald, uh, story about, about this, uh, incestuous relationship, this incestuous, uh, uh, situation that that results in judah's two uh two two primary sons in that case and basically uh that the placement of that is to establish basically judah coming to understand judah's brought face to face with his his own deception you know he has this moment with uh, tamar where he says you know, you've been more righteous than I. Uh, and that seems to change him for the rest of the narrative. I mean, he's the guy that sort of talks the the uh, his brothers into selling Joseph into slavery. And then by the end, after that episode happens in 38, he's the guy that volunteers to, you know, stay behind and be enslaved by Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph. He's the guy that is, is volunteering to stay behind and be enslaved in place of Benjamin. Uh, which does it, which shows you know that there, there's been significant change. There's been you know progress in his own character uh, in his own character, and then you see him in the prophet uh, in the prophecies of uh, of Jacob. You see him designated as a ruler among his brothers, though Joseph gets the uh, the blessing of the firstborn. So you you see the split there between uh, Joseph getting the blessing of the firstborn, but Judah getting the rule of the brothers. Uh, and then that that works its way through the rest of the of the narrative. But really, in that sense, it's only two of the twelve brothers and two of the twelve tribes that that really matter on that front. Uh, Benjamin yeah. also has his own thing going, and Levi also has obviously some real importance as you get further into the uh, into the narrative. But you just don't see a lot of personality for the most part from from those tribes to be able to pull on that that way. Yeah. Yeah, and Judah was the one that I was thinking of most, just in, in especially with that change in him. If that, if that, you know, if that, if we're supposed to look at that a certain way or or that kind of thing. So yeah, that that was helpful. Um, and I guess it, taking a step back too, like uh, when when it's it, especially at at first when it's referring to Israel, is it is it referring to the people or to the land? Like. Um, the uh the 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 tribes of Israel that um but then but then they'll also they'll be referenced to Israel and it, and it was just hard like at times was it are they talking about the people of Israel or are these writers talking about the land of Israel and I guess the the deeper question there is when when is it started being called the land of Israel. So I'm not sure when you're talking about in terms of. Like, where is it talking about, you know, is it talking about the people or the land? You'd have to look at specific 
indications to know exactly where you're talking about. Uh, as far as it being called the land of Israel, it starts to be called that once the people are in the land and have some measure of control over it. So essentially, once you get the monarchy and you get, you know, the 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 control of the land under a political uh under under the, under a political rule of Israel, you you have the land of Israel in that sense, but the land takes its name from the people, at least in the Bible. That's that's what you get. So, uh, the people are called Israel or the children of Israel or the sons of Israel, uh, long before there is a land of Israel, because the land is the land of the people of Israel, and so it becomes their land, right? Just mm -hmm. like uh, you might say that there are French people, and then. French people live in the, the place where French people live is France. Now, normally these days, you know, nations, people, people take their names from the nation that they live in. So it's a little bit different, but that's, that's, that's sort of how things are envisioned in the biblical thing is that the land takes its name from the people. Okay, cool. Uh, the, the next question has to do with the offerings and the sacrifices. Um, what, how, how, how should we view these? Like what, what was, and I guess what's the purpose of each of the different offerings? So like, I'm just looking at one page here in Leviticus and, the, and there are sin offerings, there are burnt offerings, there are trespass offerings. Um, what, how do we view each of these? And, and then same with sacrifices, like what, what was the purpose for each of the offerings and each of the sacrifices? Uh, that, that, that gets into a lot of, uh, complexity because you have several sacrifices that are that are taking place or several offerings I should say uh and exactly what they're doing there's some debate about some of them but uh but we can we can talk about some things in general and then we can get into uh uh into the a little bit more of the weeds with each of them uh as you see fit on this but First thing to think about or first thing to talk about here is that when I when I teach sacrifice, when I teach the the basic conceptions of sacrifice uh, in classes on the ancient world or in like a Hebrew Bible class, Old Testament class, one of the things that I, I try to try to get across is what exactly is 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 happening in sacrificial cultures in general, uh, because it's something that we're pretty detached from. It's like, OK, you know, you're going to go down there and you're going to you know, take some animal and, you know, just sacrifice it. Like most people think of sacrifice as like you're coming and you are giving something up. So you take the animal and you, you know, just burn it and, you know, well, you know, so much for that animal and, but that, but I sacrificed. And there is the Ola or the, the whole burnt offering uh, that is incinerated like the whole thing goes up ola means to go up and so you have the whole thing burns and so it goes up in smoke uh you do have that but that's not the most the most common uh thing but in any case most sacrifices in the ancient world and most of the sacrifices that you're going to see happening in uh the bible are are a little different and and this is where you know c.s lewis put it well at one point where he said uh, uh every temple in the ancient world, and, and still actually in certain parts of the world, uh, every temple was basically a uh, a slaughterhouse. Uh, you know, it's basically what's what's happening, uh, and it's a place where the best the best analog for this when I teach it, the best analog is tailgating. 
If you want to know what it was like to go to an ancient temple, if you want to know what sacrifice generally as a practice looked like, go to a a tailgate in the southeastern part of the country. Go to Athens, Georgia, Tallahassee, Florida, uh, you know, Red Stick. Go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Go to uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama on a, on a home game Saturday and go there and see how, see what people are doing. And what has happened is they have gone to the place where the deity puts his name. So, you know, you have uh, the dogs are there and, you know, uh, Uga is present in, in his presence. You go to where Uga is present to where we as a group recognize that we are here as sort of servants of Uga. Uh, and we're coming together and we are going to have a common meal with some really good food. And, you know, you go to the good tailgates and they've got, you know, these massive smokers that they, ta- you know, uh, that they, that they pull in behind their, their pickup trucks and all this. And, you know, you open it up and you got like a whole side of beef in there, a whole, you know, whole hog or whatever. And, you know, you eat like real you know, a lot of meat and people generally getting, you know, they're imbibing a decent amount of alcohol, uh, these sorts of things. And this is how sacrifice essentially worked in the ancient world is, is it it basically the difference between sacrifice then and what we have now in tailgating. The primary difference is that instead of having a pre-slaughtered animal that you, you know, tugged along in the smoker as it's cooking on the road behind the, behind the, the, the car, you just bring it live and slaughter it on site and then cook it. And actually you have, you know, your professional butchers or your, you know, essentially your priests who, you know, slaughter it, quarter it, you know, do all the stuff that's necessary, skin it, you know, cook the meat and all of this and they participate and then they get their share out of it and then you get yours. Uh, but is, isn't then, there like a, isn't there more of a contrition on the side of the going to the temple to, to sacrifice or... Because I, I view it like a football game, like you're going there to have fun, you're going there to party, and, whereas like a sacrifice, the the way I, I view it, and, and, and I'm asking here, like, is the right way to view it is like you're going, yeah, you're going to be eating meat, you're going to be, it's a communal thing, but it's more out of an act of contrition for the wrong I've done or... Or Generally, no. In in most sacrificial contexts uh, in the ancient world, and there there is some difference in certain cases in the Hebrew Bible, but generally these are cele- uh, celebratory contexts. You go and you make these offerings, and you pour some out for God, right? You you know make your libations for God, and then God gets His part that that burns up on the altar, uh, and then the priests take their part, and then the rest of the party takes their part. And the thing is. In the ancient world where you don't have freezers, you don't have, you know, refrigeration. If you, if you kill a, you know, 300 pound, uh, you know, let's say a 250 pound sheep or a, you know, 3000 pound bull, you got a lot of eating to do in front of you. Yeah. You, you kill a bull. First of all, you're pretty wealthy to have it. And secondly, you're inviting everybody everybody's having a good time and eating that as they, as they go along. So that's the default is this is a, uh, this is a, you know, basically a big party where everybody's able to get together and eat and celebrate the, um, 
the goodness of God. So essentially you have the, uh, the, uh, you're celebrating the, the 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 beneficence of God to give you what you have. So, this would be, for example, what is often called a peace offering would would fall into that into that category, um, or a fellowship offering, sometimes translated that way. It's it's shalomim. Uh, you get you hear the shalom word in there. It's like the well being offering, uh, and this is the default kind of offering that is going to be offered by most people most of the time. Is you're going to come in, you're going to have a big feast and you're it's you're, you're you're doing it in thanksgiving and as a part of uh as a part of worship as a part of thanksgiving worship so that's so your it, kind of def default offering and it doesn't but it doesn't alter the relationship with god like isn't there some sort of a like there's been wrong done you're sacrificing this animal to get back to god or no no, not with the peace offering. So with the shlemim, or with, you know, with that kind of offering, you are this is this is you are offering out of thanksgiving and well being, and you are just basking in the presence of God. Uh, you know, you are having a common meal where the deity is invited, and you know we are eating in His presence. And thank you, God, for giving us this well being. Uh, you also have the grain offering, the mincha. Uh, the mincha has a uh, is is a it's an offering. It's like, you know, you have like a handful of, of grain here that, uh, that that's, it's put up and part of the grain goes to God and is burned up. Part of it is, uh, is, you know, taken and eaten by the priests. And then the rest is again, eaten by the people. And it would be similar to, uh, that, that same similar to the peace offering as well. Now the burnt offering is a little different, right? So as I mentioned, you've got the, the Ola, the, the, uh, the whole burnt offering, where in this case you bring the 350 pound sheep or whatever, you know, that's a pretty big sheep, I guess a 200 pound sheep. You bring that 200 pound sheep, you cut its throat and then you incinerate the whole thing on the altar. You do not eat any part of it. The priests do not eat any part of it. And the whole thing goes up before, before God. Uh, and so uh, this is essentially given as a gift uh, and has a sort of purificatory function. Uh, the, the Hebrew word kiper is difficult to, to get in English, uh, but it's to like wipe clean or, or purge. <clears throat> and the basic idea here is that you are essentially in the, in the burnt offering, the smoke of the offering becomes sort of like food for God. So God doesn't, you know, like, need like physical food in the way like he doesn't eat like flesh in this way but as the smoke for the animal goes up it sort of becomes a part of the of the domain in which god actually exists and uh serves as a as a gift toward god as a way to uh to ensure proper you know good relationship and then in this, and this is done by the way, evening and morning in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple, it's done on behalf of the people evening and morning by the priests. So you, you know, once in the morning, once in the evening, you know, kind of have God's breakfast and then God's, di God's dinner. Uh, and in each case, this is, this has a purificatory function in that the people are essentially putting the, putting God first. And it has a, uh, that, um, 
that purificatory fashion uh, 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 function when it comes to uh, when it comes to ensuring that the people are able to continue to to approach God as 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 they should. Uh, now, certain individuals for certain uh, in certain contexts, you could offer burnt offerings uh, on you know on behalf of an individual. Uh, so that that does happen as well. You have, and and in that case, sometimes uh, that that's similar to like the sin or the guilt offering, which those those also we haven't talked about yet, but those also have to do with the same kind of phenomenon. Uh, and again, in this case, what's happening is the the smoke is going up for the olah. It's going up before the Lord in place of the worshiper, in some sense. Uh, and again, it's 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 providing that sort of purificatory uh bridge between uh heaven and heaven and earth and between the worshiper and, and God. Uh then you have the khata, the uh, the sin offering. Uh it's usually it's usually an English translated sin offering. Uh might be better to take it as something like purificatory offering. Um it's also a purific purification offering. It's a little bit a little bit tricky, but in this case, what you have is uh, the person comes and they they confess their sin, they state they state their sin, they state what they've done wrong, their uh, their guilt, and then they lay their hand on the head of the animal. The animal is sacrificed and or the animal is slaughtered, and then the blood is uh, is sprinkled and so on, as, as is the case with most of the others. Uh, and then the fat parts are offered up in smoke just like in the peace offering and the priests take their portion as well, but the people do not eat of that. If I remember that uh, correctly. Uh, and again, this has to do with uh, purification of essentially with making sure it's a purification in the context of, of someone has done has broken one of the you know covenantal strictures. And this is sort of like a restitution offering in some sense, right? You've, broken relationship with God. So now you are going to make restitution in, in, in some sort of way. Uh, and then that sort of decontaminates the, the tabernacle itself uh, for what you've done. So it's less about decontaminating you exactly, but more about making sure that God doesn't withdraw his presence from the tabernacle or from the temple. So you go and you, you know, you take care of that that way. Uh, okay. Which is why you know the blood is sprinkled on the altar and on the, uh, uh, you know the uh, the base of the altar and on uh, oftentimes on the uh, uh, it's some, some of that blood is put on the horns of the incense altar these sorts of things. It's about purification of the of those spaces that have been threatened. The purification of the purity of which has been threatened by the presence of sin in the community. So, so the blood is the blood is not sprinkled on the individual. In those cases, generally not. Okay. And is this how all cultures at this time viewed offerings in the sense of the smoke was going up to the gods? You get some of that. I mean, uh, if you, you know, I think you're reading right now, the uh, Enuma Elish, right? That's coming up. But what I'm, what I'm thinking of is, is Gilgamesh where um, the, the gods get mad at, at Ea or uh, Ea, the, that yeah. God, because he, he did the flood and then yeah. the gods starve because, the people aren't offering sacrifices to them. So is it that idea of what you just said, where they're, they're kind of eating through the smoke of the sacrifice? Yeah, that's a pretty common thing. Now in the uh, Enuma Elish, you have the gods are 
are personified as like they they come upon the uh the offering like uh uh like the insects like the flies that come down to you know to to deal with the corpse and all of this so they're the gods mm -hmm. are kind of personified in that fashion but again it's a very similar kind of notion that you know this is as you get this transformation of this you know solid thing to smoke that dissipates into the air the deities that are celestial and sort of airy in some sense are nourished by that mm -hmm. so yeah that's a pretty common thing in the ancient world okay so and then you have the guilt offering uh the uh asham offering and again uh the this offering has to do with again dealing with the the if the if the if there's been some sort of mishandling of of sacred things uh so if there's been something that has been desecrated then the guilt offering is necessary and this again is going to this is going to have a uh it's going to have have the effect of trying to purify the tabernacle or the temple after a breach of sanctity essentially the uh, something that has broken down in the distinction between what is holy and what is what is what what is what is sacred and what is common, and again, sacred or or holy is a cultic category. It's not a moral category. It's a cultic category that has to do with, uh, how uh, with with separation from the everyday common stuff. Common stuff okay. is you know, vulgar is a word that means common. Common mm -hmm. is just your everyday practices, your everyday stuff. Sacred is the stuff that has to do with the not everyday, with the eternal. Uh, and the more you get to the immortal sphere, and what is what is truly holy, what is truly sacred, is the immortal, unchanging sphere of the deity. When you get into that space, that has to be recognized as something different. And if you, if if you inadequately, uh, if you desecrate that, if you treat the, that space as common space then there needs to be some sort of guilt reparation for that and that's what the what the guilt offering is for uh, okay so once again that has to do with uh there's it's it's very similar to the sin offering but there's a different a little bit different blood manipulation ritual that's going to be a little bit more like the uh the burnt offering or the peace offering because it's not purification of the sanctuary that's that's going on uh but but rather uh other other things so i'm afraid this has been a little bit unclear in some sense but uh this is a lot to get through in a short amount of time yeah well no i mean just just the the separation between like peace offering and sin offering is very helpful just to know you know one's more of like a party one is one is more for for purification uh but like in all of these things would it have been costly to the individual i mean i i know people would have had different levels of, of wealth, but if they're having to provide these animals and I, I, I remember in, in parts of it, like it, if you are poor, you would, you could bring a, a different animal than someone who is richer, but like, is this heavily costing people every time they go to do these offerings or is this just kind of a. Well, <clears throat> with the peace offering, that's just what you do when you need to, when, when you're going to eat meat. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's a good way to good way to have your your party, you know, to yeah. eat meat before the before the deity. 
and especially when, you know, before you have the centralization where it's limited to Jerusalem, I mean, this is what's happening in, at all the, you know, sacred high places and all of that. You know, you see this in like first Samuel when Samuel is presiding over the sacrifice. He blesses the sacrifice. They get together. They butcher it. They then get together. And, you know, you've got that example where Saul is, he, you know, Samuel knows Saul's going to come and he's designated like the choicest part of it for Saul. Like, oh, put that aside. I know somebody's coming here. Like, oh, there's your part. And that's part of the sacrifice that he's eating. That is a fellowship offering or peace offering. Okay. And that's your default thing. So, yeah, if you're the person from whose flock that was taken, then, yeah, that's a that's a costly thing. But, I mean, at the same point, you're raising cattle and sheep and other things precisely for that function. Okay. Uh, it's just a matter of, like, once it's killed – it it had better all all be used quickly, mm -hmm. uh. So so that's that's a part of it. Now with the uh, uh with with a whole burnt offering, if somebody's offering a lot of whole burnt offerings, yeah, that's costly. You know, if someone brings a, a guilt offering or a sin offering where they're not actually getting meat out of it, yeah, that's costly. Mm -hmm. And in certain cases, you know, you have um certain purification offerings that that are required where it says like if it's a poor person who can't afford to bring a goat or a sheep then, you know, a couple turtle doves will, will work. And so basically you have to go out and find a way to get those turtle doves. And and, and the way it worked in, in the temple is that they actually had, you know, caged doves that they bred for this mm -hmm. function. And you could go in with a couple, you know, a couple coins, you could buy what you needed for that. So there's a, there was an assumption that like some people could afford this and other people couldn't. And so for the people who couldn't like, well, you offer these doves and, and we're good. So mm -hmm. yeah, there's a little bit of, um, a little bit of that, but yeah, with the with the with the sin offering, the the whole burnt offering or the ola, um, with the uh, with the guilt offering, uh, those 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 come with some cost for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go into curse. Uh, so when I read through the Bible in 2020, uh, the big theme I I paid attention to is the curse. It showed up on like page three, and then it showed up on the last page of the Bible as well. So Genesis and then, and then revelation. And so there's the curse through throughout it. Um, but when I, like, when I think of curse, I think of somebody cursing and, and, or, or I think of movies where someone's cursed. Uh, what, what, what would the understanding have been of a curse during this time? And I mean, just kind of at a very basic level, like he, who could curse, who could like a person curse another person could only God curse people could like what was the mentality of the curse and then who could curse other people and what did that what did that all mean yeah that's and again that's a a big big question mm -hmm. um when you when you look at this at this question first of all you're you're asking how how did people in the ancient world think about curses uh well in the ancient world there's a lot of concern about like the evil eye about all sorts of things that you know somebody could you know essentially cast a bad uh could could put some sort of bad vibes on you that that really affect you mm -hmm. uh, and so you know a curse in this case falls in line with that sort of thing i mean people are walking around all the time with you know various pendants and 
you know, various things that are designed, you know, the, the hope is that they'll keep away the evil eye, these sorts of things, or, you know, cur you know, curses and all of that. So that's already part of the, of the larger phenomenon in the ancient world is this idea that, you know, somebody could for, you know, whatever reason or what, through whatever uh, method, uh, and sometimes accidentally, uh, basically have bad vibes, bad vibes come on you so that you're going to have a very difficult, a very difficult time as a result. Mm -hmm. Um, and a curse would be essentially that through spoken word, right? So it's essentially speaking something that's, uh, it's negative speech that's going to result in something bad for you. So, um, the general idea is that people can curse other people for sure. People have that that power. Now, Proverbs 26, 2. Uh, so uh, this, you have this idea where it says, uh, like a sparrow in its flitting, a swallow in its flying, an undeserved curse does not come to rest or a curse that without cause, something like that. Um, so the idea there is that a curse can have effect if you deserve it, right? So if someone curses you, if you were innocent, then God will essentially intervene. But if you weren't and you deserved it, that could actually have like real impact on you. That's the mm -hmm. kind of presumption that's embedded in that in that idea. Uh, and you know, all of these eventually, you know, go back to the power of God, uh, because God is the one who ultimately has the power to bless or to curse. But yeah, okay. that's that's a basic idea. Okay. Um, and I asked you about this last year and we had, we had a good conversation off offline, but, uh, just, just a, uh, kind of overall view, like how, how should we view the Apocrypha? But before we get into that, uh, would Jesus have read the books of the Apocrypha? Like, would, would that have been, would they have been around to where he would have read some or, or all of the books of the Apocrypha? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think he would have certainly known at least some of the traditions of them. And I think there's indication that he is aware of at least some books from the Apocrypha and from elsewhere outside of the uh, the, the books that are in uh, the Christian Bible, you know, in, in the Apocrypha of Christian Bibles. Uh, so a book like Jubilees, I think, was very influential. It's not in the it's not in the Apocrypha of anything except for the Ethiopic Orthodox Church. So, uh, you know, but it was, it was known in Jesus day and was influential among certain groups in Jesus day. And I think it had some influence in, in the early Christian groups as well, uh, though they didn't agree with everything on it. It's, it's part of that discourse. Uh, so yeah, he, I, I think he knew and was aware of many of those traditions. Now, uh, you're asking to some degree what, um, like how should we view it or like how should we understand it or i'm not quite yeah in in the sense of uh like it was never in the bibles i had growing up and so i always viewed it with trepidation i always viewed it as something scary uh maybe there was things in there that i shouldn't read um it does it have and then and then but there's it it there's a lot of things that are similar to the rest of scripture so there's prophecies in there so how do i view a prophecy that a lot of people don't don't consider to be in the canon 
Um, does it, yeah. does it have less impact? Is it like a half a prophecy then? Or like, you know, how, like how, how do I view, how do I view it in that? Well, I mean, I, so this, this gets to a matter of faith, right? This, this ultimately has to do with more than just uh, straight up biblical interpretation. This has to do with how you're drawing the boundaries of, you know, what is, what is authoritative and what's not. Uh, and so to some degree, that's a, you know, uh, it's kind of up to the reader uh, and up to the community on exactly how you're going to take that. But I think in general, the most important thing in terms of, of thinking about this or the easiest way to think about it has to do with thinking about what, what a canon is, like what the purpose of a canon is, like what the function of a canon is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a little test here. I'm pretty sure we meant, we mentioned this last year. Do you remember what canon with the one N actually means? No. So that's actually really important here because canon means measuring rod or measuring stick. So, you know, yardstick, something like that. Uh, so it is a measuring rod. It's the, it's the standard by which other things are measured. And so the function of a canon in a religious community is not to be the sum total of all knowledge for that religious community, right? That it, I mean, the Bible doesn't work that way for anybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, no matter how much somebody might say, well, only book that matters for me is the Bible. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you've read a cookbook before and you followed those instructions because you thought that that would be useful, right? Mm -hmm. Just because that's not in the biblical canon doesn't mean that it's not valuable, right? And it turns mm -hmm. out that there's a really, it, I just recently learned this, if you if you bake bacon in the, in the oven with a little bit of flour on it to uh, absorb the... Uh, the 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 fat as it warms up mm -hmm. it comes out perfect so you just put flour on it right well just because that's not in the bible doesn't mean that it's not true doesn't mean mm -hmm. that it's not actually really valuable right i mean if you like bacon that's a pretty good way to go uh or if you prefer you know bacon is not on the menu because bacon is proscribed it's it's prohibited in the uh in the torah then maybe you know you go and find another uh, another kind of um of of menu option but again just because those things are not in the in the canon doesn't make them not valuable what it means is that the canon the purpose or the function of a canon in a religious community is to establish what serves as the standard by which other things are measured within the life of the community so essentially if something more or less goes against the ideas that are present in, say, the Gospel of Mark, then that can be rejected offhand by the by the community, right? Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to propose that this is a particular that there's a particular way of of viewing God or particular behaviors that are acceptable or not, you turn to the canon and you say, well, the according to what we have designated as authoritative by our measuring stick here, this says that behavior is not acceptable. So you're going to have to find really good reason to, to demonstrate that there's some other interpretation of this that would mean that that, that that is okay. But the canon functions that way as a way to designate what is what is absolutely trustworthy and then thereby serves as a measuring stick for everything else. And anything else that that contradicts what's in that larger canon that can that can be rejected out of hand and anything that doesn't directly contradict that well you know you can kind of 
take it for what it's worth and your mileage may vary and it may be it may be true it may not be but you know your judgment is going to be important on that but that that's basically the the design of a cannon okay all right yeah that's that's very helpful um all right a couple more questions the first is there's a census taken around the time that uh, Jesus is born. Do we have those results? Have we ever discovered those? <laughs> no. Uh, and there's, you know, a significant amount of uh, uh, doubt among scholars as to whether or not that census at that time actually happened or whether or not that's just a literary device from Luke. Because we do know about a census that happened in 6 BCE under Quirinius when Quirinius was governor of, of Syria. But Luke is saying that this is happening about 10 years earlier seven years earlier basically uh and he says this is the census that became important when Quirinius was governor of syria it's actually usually translated otherwise it's usually this was the census when Quirinius was governor which is completely i mean if that is what what he's saying there then he's just it's not right uh i don't think that's actually what the what the greek is saying there but uh this is the census that became important when Quirinius was governor so he, i think he's signaling to this later thing um uh down the line but we don't have the results from either one i mean if there was one in you know at the time that luke is talking about then you know we definitely don't have that and we don't have the results from the quirinius one which we we have you know discussion of in other sources so yeah that the thing is we don't have a whole lot of information from antiquity about anything we're, we're mm -hmm. fortunate to have anything and and that's just yeah. not one of the things we have so the 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 reason behind that question is i mean what what was what were Judea and Galilee like during the time of Jesus? Would they have been majority Jew? Would they have been a majority Roman? Um, the Jews seemed like they had quite a bit of religious autonomy under the Romans. Uh, but like, what what was the makeup of of the of the land, especially Judea and Galilee? Yeah, it's a good question. So, uh, uh, Judea was vast majority Jew uh, at the time. There was mostly Jews in Judea and uh, there were a few peoples from other other groups. Uh, but for the most part, it was it was, you know, 90 plus percent Jews. Okay. And then you'd have, you know, small battalion of, of Romans that would be there during most of the year. The Roman governor would actually be out in Caesarea he, uh, near the coast. He didn't want to come that far inland and, you know, slum it with all the people. So had Caesarea along the uh, along the Mediterranean coast down by the beach and you know hang out there where it's a little nicer and then you know Passover you come in you come inland and you come and you 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 make your presence known in Jerusalem at that time because that's a, a pretty it's a powder keg that you want to make sure it doesn't get lit mm -hmm. um but uh, so you have some you know some uh uh soldiers that are there and some others you know basically i have to think of it as like an independent contractors on behalf of the romans in various ways that are there uh and you have various internationals of various types you know coming through uh and living there so you've got you know some mixture but judea is is vast majority jewish uh okay. galilee is also mostly jewish but you have more of a mixed population there especially in the larger cities so when you get into the countryside in Galilee, it's almost exclusively Jewish. So if you go to what is widely regarded as like the Nazareth in which Jesus was born, probably 100% Jewish when Jesus was, was living there. Okay. Um, but 
if you go to Sepphoris or you go to uh, Capernaum, you're going to have a, a, a much more mixed population where you're going to have uh, merchants and others from, from various places. And you also have, again, a Roman presence in that region as well that are, that are going to be doing their thing. But for the most part, it's mostly Jewish in Galilee as well. Now, of course, you have the Samaritans in the Samaria area, which is between the two. Uh, and the Samaritans are not Jews, but they're not also they're also not Romans or any others. They you know they claim to be Israelites, but they're but they're not from Judah. So that that's a rivalry situation uh, for sure. But um, and you have a decent number of of Samaritans in that central area as well. But there are Jews also in that area, though not usually living in Samaria or with the Samaritans. Uh, all that much. So it's a little bit of a mixture, but like I said, in Galilee, you're going to have your larger cities, like on the Sea of Galilee and and, and that sort of thing. You're going to have a pretty good mixture. And then on the other side, as you get to the Transjordan, so the other side of, of Galilee, uh, you're going to get a much heavier foreign, you know, non-Jewish presence. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was, that area was mostly colonized. It was mostly resettled uh, by Jews under the you know a couple hundred years earlier under the under the Hasmoneans when they when they took over that's the descendants of uh, the house that of Judas Maccabeus uh, when they when they became rulers of uh, Judea they basically colonized that northern Galilee area again uh, okay. and so you had a, a very significant Jewish presence by the time you get to Jesus today. Okay, cool. Last question is uh, you've got a book coming out. Oh, this year. actually, sorry, one oh, one yeah. one more. Uh, you also in your thing you you said uh, you you mentioned uh, and I for, almost forgot to address this. You, you mentioned that it seemed like Jews had quite a bit of autonomy, oh, yeah. and yeah, in general, that's the case. The, the, you know, as with most empires through history, Rome was not really all that interested in direct rule because direct rule is costly. Mm -hmm. Like it costs resources and it costs attention and time, and you know you have to you have to actually deal with all this stuff on the day to day. You don't want to do that. What you want is you want taxes. Hmm. The, the whole purpose of you know imperial expansion is to essentially increase your your donor base, and uh, you know good. Uh, I uh, I heard somebody not long ago uh, say that Rome by this point had, was was becoming something like a series of military bases with a uh, with an expanding with a uh, with a tax base that needed to expand to. Uh, to meet the need for the expanding military presence, essentially. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, uh, uh, Rome was going to further conquer, conquer outside. You know, they were they were consistently expanding the empire, but that was all in service of bringing more resources into the empire, essentially, and and mm -hmm. and bringing those you know back into uh, enriching the larger empire. What you don't want to do is then have to actually spend all that money and re all those all that money and all those resources governing the population that you just conquered. Yeah. So what they would do, and this is what empires have typically done throughout history, is they would find local people who would be happy to uh, to work with them. So you find a Herod the Great, and you're like, oh, great, perfect, you can rule on our behalf.
the GarageBand file is going to be real interesting. <clears throat> what happens? Hang on. What you want to do is you want to find somebody like Herod the Great who is local enough and has enough power in that uh, among the population that you can say, okay, here's the deal. You bring in this much in taxes, you can do everything the way you want. Just send mm -hmm. us our money. Yeah. And then the locals rule on your behalf. And by the time you get to uh, the thirties, when, you know, the twenties and thirties, when Jesus is, is running around in his ministry, the late twenties and early thirties, by that point, you know, you have Pontius Pilate, who's the, you know, he's the prefect in charge, but he's in Caesarea most of the time. And, you know, he's just kind of there. And his job is to make sure that the, that the area stays under Roman control and that taxes keep flowing. But he really ultimately rules through the day, to, the, the person who handles the day-to-day -day operations on behalf of the Romans is the high priest. And the high priest okay. then has all sorts of other locals that are in, in charge as well of making sure that they keep the peace. And they're incentivized to do this because if they don't, they lose their head, first of all. The Romans will come in and take care of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like, well, we're incentivized to make sure that we handle things on behalf of our people. We keep our people in place because otherwise I'm in trouble. And then also, if I don't do this, then they'll come in and wipe us all out, not just me. So essentially, you, you have the people working and ruling on behalf of them of themselves but again the whole thing is ultimately going to go back to there's going to be taxes paid to the romans mm -hmm. and so the romans were really not interested in like restricting religious freedom and those sorts of things there's a lot of autonomy there you know do whatever you want mm -hmm. as long as the money comes to rome we are happy mm -hmm. you can it, it, you know there there are a few things like you can't you know sacrifice people Right. There's no human sacrifice allowed in the Roman Empire. So if you're going to do that, like, well, we're going to have an issue. But if you, you know, upped your taxes enough, we might look the other way. I mean, that's just how Rome was. Like they were mm -hmm. very, very tolerant of whatever didn't get in the way of money, okay. which is how empires traditionally have worked. I mean, that's empires have usually been places where people had a lot of have a lot of autonomy in all sorts of other areas as long as the empire gets paid. Mm hmm. Okay. Uh, so you got you've got your second book coming out this year. Can you give us the uh, the Reader's Digest version of of what <laughs> what we can expect? Wow. Um, Reader's Digest version. Um, let's see how fast we can do this. So my first book, as you remember, was on uh, the concept of Israel in early Judaism and essentially what what would it mean when people were talking about Israel? And mm -hmm. when people are talking, when people are talking about the expectation of Israel's restoration. Uh, and one of the things that that book put forward and, and, and demonstrated is that in the time period that Paul, for example, is writing and, uh, you know, before him as well, uh, Israel was not equivalent to the Jews alone. Instead, Jews are a subset of Israel, but not the whole. And that you have this expectation for a large-scale restoration of Israel that's going to include all 12 tribes, including those tribes that are not affiliated with, with Judah in any way. Uh, 
Now, they'll all come under Judahite rule in some sense. I mean, there's usually some expectation of that, that as they are reunited, they'll come under David or, you know, come under a single king, you know, Judah and Ephraim. The sticks of Judah and Ephraim will be joined together in the hand and will be placed under one king. You know, that's uh, Ezekiel 37. Uh, the second book basically builds on that and, and, and uh, works through what the implications of that are for how we understand Paul and the, the Apostle Paul and his letters in the New Testament. So essentially my argument is that uh, Paul's mission to the nations, his mission to the Gentiles, and his insistence on Gentile uh, incorporation into the into the community uh, in, among those who follow Jesus is actually not contradictory to, but in fact based on his conviction, uh, his his expectation of Israel's restoration. So he's expecting a full 12 tribe restoration of Israel. And he thinks that Jesus is the Messiah who has uh, initiated this, this restoration. Well, the problem is, where are these tribes? Where is Reuben? Where's Gad? Where's Asher, Naphtali, these others that, you know, seem to have been scattered beyond repair, you know, generations before. And essentially my, my larger argument is that Paul reads, I think he's a very careful reader of the Hebrew Bible. And I think Paul is reading his Bible and saying, you know, that part of Israel was gentilized. They became assimilated among the nations. They became gentilized, but God's promise still applies to them. So now in order to restore them as promised, they have to be de-gentilized. Uh, essentially, you have to have people from the nations where these, where, where Israel was scattered, people from the nations that come into uh, faithfulness and are essentially, and they essentially become resurrected Israelites and that this is how Paul understands the restoration of Israel. So uh, those Gentiles who are receiving the spirit are actually the means of restoration for the whole 12 tribe people of Israel, as far as Paul understands it. Uh, and then, you know, along with that sort of larger, that's sort of the the main thread that works through the whole book. But then there's a variety of specific interpretations of, you know, a variety of difficult passages, passages that many biblical scholars, many Pauline scholars have declared to be uh, either too difficult or, or simply uh, contradictory to what Paul says elsewhere. I work through all, a lot of those specific passages and demonstrate that if you take the paradigm that I'm arguing, they actually all hang together in a really robust and uh, sort of elegant way. And mm -hmm. Paul makes a lot more sense and works uh, much and all of it sort of uh, works together in ways in that model that, that don't work in any, any other model of, of understanding uh, what Paul's doing. And that also has bleed over effects to how, you know, the, the, the early Christian message is understood in general. So mm. essentially that's the, the larger, the larger argument of the book. Cool. Cool. And what's, what's that one called? It's going to be Paul in the resurrection of Israel, Jews, former Gentiles, Israelites. So Paul in the resurrection of Israel. Nice. Well, good. Well, I'll, I'll read that when cover. when it comes out, and uh, hopefully we can, we uh, we can discuss that. Um, but thanks for joining. Um, very helpful. These 
these answers and and just thinking through uh, a lot of these pieces. And then I, I just find it helpful too. Um, I mean, even as I'm reading through this time, your, your first book came came into mind a lot when I was reading through the Bible and then just other times that we've had discussions in the, the first episode we did like this, where it was the kind of the questions and answers um, that's helped in subsequent readings as well. So, uh, so thank you for that. Always happy to, uh, to chat and uh, we need to do this more uh, off air also once we get more chance. Yeah. Those days are coming. Yeah. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. I am currently reading about Egypt. So I'm on book two of the Great Books Project. Book one was the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I dug deep into that one. And that's uh, the previous two episodes. I covered that and then just a book I read about ancient Mesopotamia. Now I'm in Egypt. So I started with the writings of ancient Egypt. And then now I'm reading a book called The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt. And I am learning so much. I'm having so much fun with it. After that, I've got a couple of art books about Egypt. And then I've got two other books about Egypt that I will be reading. So I'm really, uh, I had planned to just kind of read one other book along with the great book to, to get a, a further insight into uh, the time or the people or the author of the great work. But um, with these first two, I just, I want to kind of do a deeper dive and, and really get to know these areas. So Mesopotamia and in, in Egypt, I just, I know so very little about these, these areas. So uh, everything I'm reading here is, is so fun and, and exciting. And so that that's, that's where I'm at right now is Egypt. Um, I'm going to be be sending out a list of some of these complimentary books that I'm reading along with the great books. And uh, I, I hope you'll join me in reading some of those as well. I've, I've been a little behind just with, with a lot going on here, but uh, I do plan to get that out soon here. So I'll be back in a couple weeks with, with another podcast episode, probably covering Egypt. So uh, look forward to that in, in a couple weeks. And until then, keep reading, keep learning and keep listening. I'm out.